You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. If you don't have a Bible on you, there should be hopefully one in the pew around you. Um, we've found that now that we're using every pew, we maybe need to get a few more Bibles. Um, but that's a great problem we're happy to solve. And uh, as always, we want you have God's Word Open on your lap. Um, I have nothing for you. I bring no great wisdom. All I have is God's word. And uh, we want you to look down and see. This is what the Lord has said, um, that we leave this place um, under his word together. And uh, so it must be um, that I'm getting old. At least that's what my wife tells me. Um, Because I have suddenly and without explanation otherwise um, began caring about my lawn. Um, I have yet to, or I was going to say, I have yet to shake my fist and yell, hey, you kids, get off my lawn, um, except Dean and Nick were over at my place on Saturday, and they spent about half an hour after they had left standing out there. So I got to try it out. It was quite satisfying. Um, I may do it again. Um, but the real battle, of course, is that epic battle against the formidable dandelion. They are relentless. They're everywhere. Anyone else have this yellow plague infesting your green paradise? Um, It's terrible. So I'm fighting this battle. Last year I went after them, uh, meticulously pulling every weed that sprouted, trying to get down into roots, um, going out day after day so they don't turn into seeds and spread seeds everywhere. I was focused. I was diligent. I was vicious. And I was ineffective. It was useless. It's like fighting the mythical hydra, cut off one head and two more shall rise. Um, All of my diligent toil produced nothing. And so this summer they came again. But this summer is different. This time I have a new strategy. I have procured a substance from people who can get things that I can't get. And, uh, and, and once applied to the dandelions, it doesn't just slow them down. It just doesn't just deal with the surface issue, but it goes down into the roots and kills it from the inside out. Now, it's not as immediately gratifying as mutilating them by hand, um, but the final outcome is so much better. Rather than just pulling the tops off and having them regrow, that plant dies from the inside. And, and begins to wither and fall. I needed more in my battle against the dandelions than diligence, more than tenacity, more than a relentlessness. What I needed was an entirely different approach. Now that I have this nuclear option, however, um, I'll tell you what I'm not doing. I'm not wasting my time going around plucking the heads off of dead dandelions. It's not worth my effort, and it was ineffective in the first place. And so... I'm not going to go there when I have this poison that kills them at the roots. Our battle against sin, the fight against the the evil in us, we so easily get caught up in the surface battle. 
We focus on getting rid of temptations, pushing away opportunities to sin. We focus on on discipline and, and determination. But as we come to Paul's third and final rebuke of these false teachers in Colossae, um, we see Paul warning, uh, don't let that be you. Don't, don't believe that the battle of sin is merely this physical battle that happens exterior to ourselves. Don't put your hope in your own self-discipline and human strategies. Our only hope in dealing with sin is the powerful application of the death of Christ. So last week we saw Paul warning against legalism, the, the addition of extra laws and duties, and we try to make ourselves presentable before God by all these extra things that we do. Paul warning then against mysticism, looking to hear directly from God, moving away from Christ and his written word, looking for my own kind of personal experience. And then finally, this morning, um, verses 20 to 23, uh, Paul warns against what we call asceticism. Um, Asceticism is the the pursuit of holiness. It's trying to get right with God um, by means of our own self-discipline. By human strategies that are, that are merely physical and, and outward, they're, they're surface strategies. It's the practice of intentionally depriving ourselves, inflicting suffering even on ourselves with the goal of, of thereby making ourselves more presentable, more acceptable to God. So if, if legalism is, is trying to approach God by adding on things, adding on extra rules and duties, uh, asceticism is trying to... Pr- Trying to present ourselves to God, approach God by subtracting things, by taking things away, taking away physical pleasures, taking away uh, temptations or physical things that might uh, distract us from the Lord. So let's, let's read Paul's warning and then we'll unpack this a little more. Colossians chapter 2, um, looking at verses 20 to 23, Paul writes, If with Christ... You died to the elemental spirits of the world. Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teaching. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh." Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for your gift to us in true and trustworthy words written down for all of us. God, help us as we look into your word. Lord, you know um, we are so often slow to hear. God, would you open our ears? Lord, would you soften our hearts this morning that we might hear your truth? that we might be challenged where we mean to be challenged, that we would be uh, encouraged and strengthened and uh, built up where we need it, or that you would be faithful as you have promised, that your word would not return void. Father, I pray for um, my words this morning, God, that they would be faithful and true uh, to your word and that you would be be glorified uh, in the growth of your church. We pray in Jesus' name. So there's a definite shift here as we move into this third uh, warning that Paul has against these false teachers. Um, He's he's wrapping up this section that that started kind of in verse 8 
um, where he said, see to it that, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, not according to Christ. And you can kind of hear the, the bookend nature of that. Um, but he's also transitioning um, from this section of, of warning. He's kind of been rebuking these false teachers and warning the church in Colossae against them um, and, and, and talking about how we are dead in Christ. We're dead to sin. Um, but then in chapter 3, he's going to transition. And what does it mean then to be alive in Christ? So he's going to go from warning to instruction. Um, we're going to get into that in the fall. We're going to spend some time in the summer just going through some psalms. Um, so we're going to leave chapter 3 sit uh, till September. Um, but here, this last verse in this first section, um, Paul turns his attention to uh, asceticism. And, it, and his first point is uh, reject asceticism, have nothing to do with asceticism because you died with Christ. The, the if there, start of verse 20, if with Christ you died, it, it presumes a positive answer. It's not a question mark. Um, he's talking to the church and he's saying, basically, since you have died with Christ, because this is true of you, and, and remember back verses 11 and 12, in him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, putting off the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So um, if you're in Christ, you've been buried with him in baptism. Your burial with him presumes your death with him. And so we need to understand the, the foundation that Paul is dealing with here. Our problem is sin. Our problem is this rebellion against God and an absolute inability to please God. This is the, the doctrine of total depravity. Now, that's not to say that we are all as sinful as we could be, but rather that sin in us permeates every part of who we are. It's, it's the depravity, the wickedness, the evil, the perversion in us that is tied up in our very hearts and so therefore corrupts everything we think, say, and do. It corrupts us totally. And so it's impossible for us to please God, to do what is right in his eyes. We, we can't fix this problem. Everything we do is stained with, with sin. And, and so it's our, our sin that, that separates us from him rather than being friends of God and, and objects of the love of God. Our sin makes us enemies of God. It makes us objects of his holy, righteous wrath. And judgment. So thinking back to verse 11, Paul talks about circumcision and then baptism. The, the, the whole idea there, that circumcision was God's promise of what he would one day do. He's talking to the, the Jews in the Old Covenant, and he's telling them that, that he would remove from them, he would, he would cut off the sinfulness that was the very, very core of, of who they were. And in doing that, he would make them his people. He would set them apart to be his holy, precious people. The death of Jesus then was the, the promise fulfilled. That's where he actually did what he said he would do on the cross. Jesus took on himself both the guilt of our sin and also the penalty of our sin. He did what needed to be done to restore our relationship to him. And whereas circumcision under the old covenant was, was their way of saying, I'm looking forward, I'm trusting in what God has promised he will do, uh, baptism for us is looking back and saying, I'm trusting what God 
has done. So Paul writes to the church, to those who believe in Christ in Colossae. He says, uh, if you were buried with him in baptism, remember that, that in Christ, that sinful part of you was put to death. It's been crucified with Christ. When Christ died, your sinful nature, that wicked part of who you were, uh, was put to death as well. Now here, Paul kind of pushes beyond that just a little bit, saying if you died with Christ, you died not only to sin, the, the power of sin over you was broken, the guilt of sin on you was, was taken away, but you also died to worldly ways of dealing with sin. You died to these, these elemental spirits of the world. Now, if you remember back from verse 8, we talked about this word, these, these elemental spirits. It's, it's a very unclear term. Um, the word itself simply means the, the basic building blocks, the foundational pieces. So like the, the letters of the alphabet are the, the foundational pieces of written language. But that word was sometimes also used of spiritual beings. Um, they, they saw um, these, these basic principles, the, the, the spirits as the basic principles of this world, the worldly system. And, and so... It really could go either way, trying to figure out what exactly Paul means. On one hand, you have the, the reference in verse 15 about the, Jesus' victory over the, the spiritual realm, the forces of darkness, the demons. On the other hand, I think the, the close context here um, seems to point to these basic principles of the world. He says you're not alive to the, the world. The, the regulations there of these elemental principles um, have to do with what you touch and what you taste and what you handle. It's, it's rules and laws about physical things. So that's how I tend to read it. Um, but as I said back in verse 8, the, the difference is not hugely significant, right? If he's talking about these spiritual beings, th then he's speaking about their influence and their lies that lead to these worldly principles. And, and in saying that he's talking about worldly principles and not necessarily spiritual beings, I don't at all intend to mean that that, that, that does not include this spiritual influence and, and demonic powers at work. So either way, Paul is saying if you died with Christ, if you're a follower of, of Jesus, in that death you died to these basic principles, those worldly, even demonic ways of thinking, of how to, how to deal with our sin and how to approach God, you're, you're done with that. They no longer have power over you. They're no longer part of the way you, you see the world. If in Christ you've, you've poisoned those weeds, why are you going around picking the heads off? It's no longer your strategy for lawn care. Um, you have a better way, a new way of thinking, a new way. And, and so what is this worldly way? What are, what are the, the old principles, the the the, the elemental principles that we used to think by that our world deals in, well, Paul says they're, they're regulations. And he sums up those regulations with those kind of three-pointed statements, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, right? That's a worldly perspective of how to get to God. And he says it's referring to things that, that perish as they're used. It's, it's physical, tangible things. We see those things and how we interact with them as crucial to how we approach God. Asceticism says, I don't want to be guilty of gluttony. And gluttony is something that happens outside of me. And so what I'm going to do is just get rid of good food. I'm just going to eat bland mush from here on out. Or I won't eat at all for, for days on end. I don't want to be guilty of 
laziness or taken up by a love of luxury. So I'm going to throw away my couch and my bed. I'm going to get rid of those things because those, are, those things are, are luxury. That's where the sin is. And I'll separate myself from it. It's this outward approach, trying to get rid of physical things that, that tempt us and, and hoping that that deals with our sin problem, that that gets us closer to God. It's an alternate strategy of, of re- restoring our relationship with the Lord rather than trusting in Christ, being reconciled by Him, by grace. The, the worldly strategy uh, is to try to get closer to God by, by removing physical items. Just like legalism, just like mysticism have a long history in the church, so does asceticism. Um, obviously, it was there in Colossae. These regulations, don't handle, don't touch, don't taste. It was also in Ephesus. Paul was writing to Timothy, whom he had left there, 1 Timothy 4, 3. He's speaking of these false teachers, and he said they, they forbid marriage and they require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So there were teachers in, in Ephesus teaching the same thing. Oh, you want to be holy? Oh, you better, you better not be married. You better not eat this food or that food. That, that will impede your holiness. So often these false teachings, um, legalism, mysticism, asceticism, they're, they're defended by people saying, look how old this is. Look back into the history of the church. See, this is the way the church has done it. And, and I agree, it is old. And we know it's old because Paul rebuked them from the very beginning. Yes, they were back there. Something being old and being a long time part of the church is not a defense that it ought to be. Not necessarily, not on its own. Certainly not if scripture condemns it. These things continue to take root and grow. Um, the practice of monasticism. Monks moving into these monasteries, they believe that closeness of God would be achieved by removing themselves from the physical world, by self-denial, self-inflicted suffering even. And so they would never marry, they would remain celibate, they would sell all that they had, they would pledge themselves to perpetual poverty. They wore clothes that were intentionally made out of rough and uncomfortable fabric. They would, they would sleep on the hard floor with no blankets. They, they cut themselves off from the pleasures of this world, inflicted intentional suffering on themselves in an attempt to deal with their sin and to draw near to God. Some monks took that to the extreme. Um, there was a monk in the 400s named uh, St. Simeon the Stylite, and uh, trying to be closer to God, trying to separate himself from the world, that, that pursuit eventually led him um, to escape by climbing up a pillar and sitting on the top of this large stone pillar. And it said he spent the next 30 years of his life never leaving that pillar. His followers would bring him food and water. That was his attempt to get closer to God, to deal with his sin. That's not just a history thing. Um, psychology today had an article talking about a modern group of monks in Brazil. They go often for days with no food, walk miles in the desert to get closer to God. Um, Once a year, they gather together, um, and they make these whips with multiple strands, and they tie razor blades to the end of each strand, and they whip themselves over and over again until the blood runs down their backs, trying to deal with sin and guilt, trying to become closer to God. 
And all of this, Paul says, no, no, you missed it. That's not the point. If you've already died with Christ, why would you act this way? If you've found the better way, the effective way, if with Christ you're dead to your sinful nature and He's working holiness in you from the outside, why are you, why are you going around worrying about physical things? Why would you go back to, to relying on cutting off the heads? You're focusing on the surface battle. Physical, worldly things, marriage, food, nice clothes, comfortable bed. That's not the problem. That's not where sin resides. Looking back at, at 1 Timothy 4, um, verse 3, and we're going to move forward through to verse 5 this time. Um, these false teachers forbid marriage, require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. And he goes on to say, for everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, for it's made holy by the word of God and by prayer. Everything in creation has its place. If it's used correctly, we all, we all have those friends who'd be like, ah, see, we can smoke pot, everything's good. What, what? It's made holy by the word of God and by prayer, um, used in its place for its proper context, not made an idol, not something that rules us or controls us. But yes, all things created to be used well, received with joy, thanksgiving. We're not to hide from this world. We're not to see this world as our enemy. Um, The the, the physical things around us are, are gifts of the Lord. So in Christ, if we've died to sin, we're to receive these things as, as, as God's good gifts. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. Our battle against sin is not won by shunning physical pleasure, God's earthly blessings. It, it, that's not our strategy for overcoming sin. That's not the way that we fix our relationship with the Lord. My hope is not in how I physically relate to the world, but, but in Christ. And there are people who will say, you can't be a Christian and own a house. You can't be a true believer and drive a nice car. Those don't go together. Those are, those are nice things. Christians ought to be poor and live in poverty. Don't let that shake you. Don't, don't submit to that. Those regulations. Don't, don't feel the, the weight, the pressure of these things. As if enjoying a delicious meal is going to ruin your relationship with the Lord. No. Rest in the fact. You've been crucified with Christ. In Him you've died to the guilt of sin. The power of sin has been broken. Sin has been slain at its root. And then in freedom, receive, enjoy God's good gifts with thanksgiving. And we're leery of the sin in us. We're working out the, the sinful heart Issues and, and, and tendencies, but, but boy, that's, that's a different thing than just seeing sin out there in the physical item. So we reject asceticism because, because you've died with Christ. Secondly, Paul says reject asceticism because it's worldly wisdom. Verses 22 and, and 23. He says, 
referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teaching. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So Paul makes a number of disparaging comments here, but before we get to those, I want you to see it does have the appearance of wisdom. Right? It, it can be easy for us to, think to brush off these warnings and think, oh, that's not me, and not take these things seriously. But even Paul admits this is deceptive. This comes in sneaky. It looks good. I remember when I was in college, um, one of my mentors was working on a master's of theology, and uh, he was studying this, this group of monks known as the Desert Fathers. Oh, man, I remember he would, he would quote the Desert Fathers, and uh, they had these kind of wise, pithy statements, and, and oh, I was just so enamored by these, these men and the, the stories about their devotion to the Lord and the things that they would, would do to pursue holiness. I just thought they were the most godly, amazing men. And, and years later, um, after I had matured some in the faith, I remember going back to, to try to find these, these wise men, to try to read, remind myself some of these profound statements and these amazing stories of, of holiness. And it's pretty disheartening to find what I once saw as, as holiness was, was really just a misguided asceticism. The sayings that, that I used to think were so deep and so profound they were mostly just moralistic and shallow. There was no mention of Christ and the gospel. Uh, it, it was worldly wisdom with this thin veneer of Christianity painted on top. Be on guard. That which looks wise, but Paul warns in the end, is, is promoting a self-made religion. It's not God's religion. It's not his plan. We, we, this is a self-made option. It's a do-it-yourself religion trying to approach God, um, but when it comes down to it, it's not on God's terms. It's not according to His wisdom, His direction. It's self-made. It's built on the wisdom of man. And, and, and then the word asceticism shows up here next in, in verse 23 uh, in the ESV. Um, this is the same word again we talked about in, in uh, verse 18. Um, I made the point then, I think asceticism is a little bit of an over-translation. The, the word behind that is literally just humility. Um, it's by the context that we know it's not good humility, true humility. It's a deficient humility. Um, there's a, a, a false humility, an improper debasing of self or some kind of superficial humility. And so asceticism, I think, would fall kind of under that category. But I think the word here has a, a broader meaning. I, I, I would go with the, the NIV that says false humility. The NASB says self-abasement. Um, but, it, but it has this air, this outward appearance of humility, of lowering self. But it's not true humility. And then he adds severity to the body. Uh, that would be a clearer reference to what we would call asceticism. It's this, this harshness, a strict, severe treatment of the, of the physical body, and it's appealing to us. It looks impressive. We see these guys and we think, man, that's so dramatic. They're, they're purists. They really believe. They are, they are doing so much more. That's so radical. I had a friend in high school, met him at a Christian conference. Um, he actually built 
a large wooden cross and put it on his back and carried it up and down the streets of his town. Wow. He wasn't in my town. I don't know what impact that had, if any, on the community. Um, But I remember a bunch of teenagers gathering around him as he told this story. I mean, his dedication, we're just in awe, right? His, his obedience, literally taking up his cross and following Jesus. Looks so humble, except for the fact that he was telling all of us about it and we were all lifting him up and praising him. And as you got to know him, he wasn't particularly holy in his language and his demeanor and the way he treated people. The reality is, it wasn't what the Lord had asked him to do. It's not what it means to take up your cross. And so much is done in the the pursuit of the Lord, like the the religion of these false teachers, that's just not what the Lord commanded. You missed the mark. You did a lot, just not what you were supposed to do. It's based on human principles, human teaching. Paul already said, rooted in these these elemental principles of the world. And, And I think that's a bigger problem than than what we recognize. Um, The bottom line is um, there are actually only two religions. Two. The religion of man and the religion of God. That's it. The the whole world breaks down. Uh, Every single world religion, formal and informal, fits into one of those two categories. The fact is actually all of them but one fit into the category of the religion of man. Every world religion, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, I don't know, Celtic, Druid, religions, Jehovah's Witness, New Age, um, your neighbor down the street who is not religious but spiritual, whatever that means, um, they're all man's religion. Lump in legalism, mysticism, asceticism. It's man's religion, and they, they have the same basic approach. Together, they, they see God or the divine or the absolute or however they want to phrase it at the top of a mountain, and we will tell you the way to climb that mountain. We will show you this is how you get to God. This is how you get to the divine. There are thousands of different examples of what that they might define that God to be or different ways that they direct to, to get up the mountain, but it's all the basically the same mold. And so it's not too surprising within our culture, um, you'll find a certain amount of unity across these different religions. People say, well, that's just my path. And you can go on your path. That's good. We're all, we're all on our way to God. We're all just making our way up the same mountain. You go your way, I'll go my way. As long as you're climbing the same mountain, what does it matter? And even as Christians, we, we get sucked in by this. As long as someone's doing their best, right? As long as they're sincere and, and working hard, then, then how could God condemn that? How should I condemn that? Who am I to say? They're seeking the Lord. They're doing their thing. I'm doing mine. But the religion of God is singular. And it is opposite to the religion of man. The religion of man says, how can I climb the mountain? How can I get myself up to God? The religion of God says, you can't. You're done. There's nothing you can do to to close the gap between you and God. You are absolutely incapable of climbing that mountain. You can never restore yourself to God. Instead, the religion of God says, well, you were yet helpless and far from God and unable to climb the slightest step toward him. He came down to us. It's the story of Jesus Christ. 
God himself came down from heaven to earth to take our sin upon himself. On the cross, he did what we never could have done. So with all these different and varied world religions, there really are only two options. You can go God's way, or you can go man's way. And you might be very sincere and genuine and working hard and going the exact opposite way, and it's an affront to the Lord. Sincerity in the wrong direction is not a virtue. God's way is admitting our desperate need, recognizing our inability to come to Him, trusting that He has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. It's humbling. It's even humiliating. It requires us to be absolutely defeated, admitting I have nothing, even admitting that all of my other ways and all of the other ways around me are useless, It requires that we reject every other human religion option. Not one of them will do. That's why Jesus would say so clearly, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Asceticism then, as man's wisdom, built on worldly wisdom, trying to climb up to God by our own efforts, trying to impress God with with feats of physical discipline and and self-imposed suffering, it doesn't just fall short. It's it's not like it it gets us halfway up and Jesus will meet us there. It's not like God says, well, you know, good job. At least you tried. I'll finish the rest. No. No, it's a rejection of Christ. It's not admitting that I am defeated and helpless in my sin and trusting in Christ. The fact that this asceticism, these these rules and and regulations focused on on physical things and and, and the approach to God by exterior work. It's it's self-made religion based on the wisdom and teaching of men, the basic principle of this world, and and therefore it is absolutely contrary to Christ. So reject asceticism, Paul says, because because you've died with Christ and, and reject it because it's man's religion. And then uh, reject asceticism finally because it's ineffective. It just doesn't work. Look at the last line of verse 23. He says they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It it doesn't work. Paul's final critique of asceticism of of these worldly religions, again, these, these physical, with regard to physical things and these human principles, is that it does nothing to stop the indulgence of the flesh. Ironically, those who are so impressive in their their dedication to God, in their their discipline, um, their, their strict physical regulations, their problem is not that they take sin too seriously. They don't take it near seriously enough. They see sin as something exterior to themselves, something out there. As if their dandelion problem was just leaves in the grass and they meticulously pull all the the visible pieces, ignoring the fact that there is a massive, thriving root structure just under the surface. They miss it. Their strict outward rules do nothing for the problem of the heart. Verse 22, um, Paul used that phrase, according to human principles, precepts, and teaching, 
Um, there's an intentional reference there. Um, that, that phrase could be translated the, the commandments and teaching of men. Um, Paul is, is referencing Isaiah 29. Verse 13, the Lord is rebuking Israel. He's warning Israel about his coming wrath and judgment. And the Lord said, because this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. And here it is, their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. They're going for man's religion. And so they speak things about God. They have this exterior um, facade of seeking the Lord. But it's all exterior. They honor the Lord with their lips. They make this outward attempt, this outward display, but their hearts were far from God. The Jews, specifically the Pharisees, were amazing examples of this, this external obedience. They were meticulous at, at keeping every outward law, even made extra laws to protect those laws. Attempt to be holy by, by separating themselves from the world will have, will have nothing to do with those Samaritans. Don't even let them into your house. Don't even touch them. They went to great lengths to keep themselves pure and holy. They made sacrifices, observed the feasts, but the Lord never had their hearts. They were not truly trusting Him, obeying Him where it mattered most, coming to Him humbly for grace came with legalism. They came with asceticism. So Matthew 15, um, Jesus quotes the same passage from Isaiah to them. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Later, Matthew 23, Jesus would say this, listen, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside is full of greed and self-indulgence, you blind Pharisees. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and the outside will also be made clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lewdness. The greatest problem with man's religion, it doesn't work. It, it, it cannot deal with the sin of the heart. Church, we fall into this. I come to church Sunday morning, I give in the offering, I raise my hands when I sing, my, I bring my family, I dress nice, I do all of these things. And God is saying, that's great. Where's your heart? Is that an overflow from a regenerate heart or are you just trying to make this man's religion? Man could cut himself off from every woman in the world and be consumed by lust. You could, you could give away every dollar that you have, devote yourself to a life of poverty and, and be guilty of the love of money. You can't. You can't do away with the sin of the heart by the discipline of the body. The problem of our sin just runs too deep. It's so much bigger than that. No amount of discipline, no application of, of diligence, no level of sacrifice, no measure of severity or even violence against the body would ever be enough to kill the root of sin in the human heart. 
that root that separates us from God. The only solution is death. And that's precisely what the Lord has done. The death of Jesus on our behalf. Whipping wouldn't be enough. Starving's not enough. Death will do. 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. He's done what we could never do. The gap between us and God, the chasm created by our rebellion against him is closed fully and completely, not by anything that we must do, but what he has already done. You're trusting in Christ, resting in him. Man, don't feel the weight of these physical burdens. Trust in Christ. Understand what it means to be dead to sin and alive to righteousness. So we're going to close celebrating communion together. Josh and the worship team, why don't you join me? It's this clear declaration that, that our salvation is not according to, to human precepts and teaching, not rooted in anything we have done, not only It is only and completely rooted in what Christ has done, what he has accomplished on the cross. And so if that's not you this morning, you're saying, yeah, I'm not sure that I'm there. That's okay. We ask that you let it pass. Just observe. Or if you're living in such a way that there's unrepentant sin, um, you need to deal with that. We don't take communion. We don't honor him with our lips and taking communion when our hearts are far from him. And yet those who come burdened by sin, we see it in our lives that we come repentant and broken saying, God, my way's not working. I can't climb that mountain. I need Christ. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. He calls us to come. He calls us to come humble and broken before him and promises salvation in Christ. And so that's what we picture as we feast again on the on the bread and the and the juice saying it's all in Christ so would you stand let's sing together and uh, communion will be handed out to you there are two cups the bread underneath and the juice on the top Uh, let's stand and sing as we prepare